Well, please turn with me to Song of Songs, chapter 4. Song of Songs, chapter 4, let us read from verse 8 through verse 16. Let us hear God's word. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Come from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinar and Hermon, from the lion's dens and from the mountains of the leopards. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine, and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor and spikenard, spikenard with saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the cheap spices. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let thy beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Amen. Well, I hope you noticed slight difference in how I spoke in verse 16. Right? In verses 8 through 15, Christ or the groom is speaking to the bride. And then in verse 16, the bride responds. The, the church responds to Christ. Now, as I mentioned before, as we've looked in our scripture reading on Song of Songs 4, 1 through 7, I do think uh, that we do need to understand that this book comes after the repentance of Solomon. Solomon had seen the vanity of pleasures and possessions and power and popularity, uh, and he now uh, comes to recognize the end of all matters is to fear God and to keep his commandments as he closes the book of Ecclesiastes. And so then he enters into this song of love, a parable um, in which he portrays the communion or the dialogue between Christ and his church back and forth mirroring significantly the way we engage in corporate worship and even in family and personal worship. God begins the worship with the call. He closes it with the benediction. In between, he speaks to us in his word read uh, and in his word preached. And we respond to that word read 
and preached in prayer and praise. Did you ever notice that? We have a scripture reading. <clears throat> After the invocation, we need his help. As soon as he calls us to worship, we need, we need help. And then as soon as he speaks to us, that we offer prayer and praise. And he speaks again, we offer prayer and praise. He speaks again, prayer and praise, and then he speaks a benediction. That's what we have going on here in this book. And as I mentioned already, I agree with Matthew Henry that Psalm 45 is a good guide for us to understand this letter. Right? And what I would also say is that there are plenty of applications in this letter concerning marriage, but they are not predominantly physical. It's a holistic perspective on marriage. Um, remember when uh, Paul in Ephesians 5 speaks of the marriage relationship of husband and wife. At the very end, he says, you know, I kind of got caught up. I've been speaking about Christ in the church. And it's like, was he speaking about husband and wife? Or was he speaking about marriage in the church? Well, I think we're understanding he was speaking about both. And so there's something for us to gather here from this text. Uh, but this is not a manual uh, for husband and wives, sexually. Um, but that is a common um, interpretation in our day. I just think it's important to mention that that is not what this book is teaching. It's not what the church has generally understood uh, through the ages. It is encouraging that there are many Reformed commentators recently who are coming back to appreciate what was the Reformed and the Puritan and Presbyterian view of this book. But what I would say is that this book was extremely and is still extremely popular amongst the Jews during Passover season. And that's why this book is often referred to uh, by Scottish Presbyterians during communion times. It's a beautiful place to go to see Christ's love uh, for his church. And as I said already, we're going to be looking at the groom speaking to the bride and then the bride speaking back. And or Christ speaking to the church and the church speaking back. So whenever I mention groom, I'm talking about Christ. And whenever I speak of the bride, I'm speaking of the church. So first, in verse 8, we have the groom or Christ giving an invitation or a call to us, the bride. Then in verses 9 through 15, we have him commending us, the bride. And then in verse 16, we have the church or Christ, I mean Christ's body, the church, accepting the invitation. Or we could say we have the groom's wooing in verse 1, the groom's wowing in, in the next verses, and then we have the church itself, the bride swooning. Wooing, wowing, swooning. Let's look at the text. So verse 8, Christ's invitation or Christ's call, the groom's will. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon, look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinar and Hermon, from the lion's dens, and from the mountains of the lepers. Come with me, he says. My spouse could literally be translated in the Hebrew, my bride. He's calling her to a very delightful place. 
And yet these mountains were very delightful places. He's calling her to comfort her, to assure her, and to excite her to come and be with him. He's calling her, he's calling us to a heavenward gaze. Our minds are to be fixed in heaven where Christ is. That's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to glorify and enjoy him forever. Right, kids, you know that catechism question, don't you? Short of catechism one. Have you ever recognized in the answer to question 38, when we learn about Christ's return, that then we come into the full enjoying of God forever? You see, we enjoy him now in this courtship period, but we're not yet married to him. It's as good as done, but there's a greater enjoying than we already enjoy of it. When we can enjoy him without sin. What would be like it? And so he calls us from Lebanon, from Amana, from Shinar, from Hermon, from pleasant places of the world. Most of us, you may not believe it, but we are very wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world. All of us here get to enjoy a lot of the pleasures of the created world that God has given to us. And yet, by God's grace, he's caused us to recognize that there's no satisfaction in them. No real, lasting satisfaction. Right? There's a pleasure that's appropriate, but we know there's something lacking in it. You remember Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones, said, I can't get no satisfaction. Now it's sad. At least he could sing that in a song, but it doesn't seem like he's recognized because he's still outside of Christ as far as I know. But we said something like that at some point. When God brought us to our senses, like he did the prodigal son, then we saw things the way they really were. And then we recognized, like Solomon, the power and possessions and pleasures and popularity would not satisfy. Here Jesus is calling us to the hill of frankincense or the mountain of myrrh that he's spoken of in verse 6 of this chapter. He's calling us to something better than worldly enjoyments and pleasures. And again, this is, he's talking about mountains. You know, this is not Vanity Fair he's talking about. He's talking about beautiful, created pleasures. Some of you enjoy climbing mountains, and isn't the vista when you get to a top of a peak a beautiful thing? Isn't it delightful? Yes, it is. But how much better to have a fresh vision of the Lord God and his love towards you? How much better is that? Now, why would he say that these pleasurable places are places of lion's dens and the mountains of leopards. Have you ever recognized how much temptation is in worldly pleasures, even pleasures that are right and godly? 
But we can make those things, we can become addicted to horizontal things and lose our focus vertically. So even very good and right things can become snares unto us. I think that's what he's speaking about. Remember, Peter refers children to Satan uh, in 1 Peter 5.18 as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Devour. Not just bite. Devour. Completely eat up. That's what Satan likes to do. He gets pleasure in that. And he and temptation lie right there. Because sin remains in us, and because Satan can speak to us, and we can not put up the shield of faith and keep those fiery darts. And sometimes the world itself, as we learn in Romans 12, 1, it kind of forces us in. It starts molding us like a, someone would do with clay. And so because of all those things, these pleasurable places can be dangerous. But he's calling her from those places to something else, to the mountain of mirth, to the hill of frankincense, to the very presence of God. And so he calls us into his very presence. He just did about 40 minutes ago when he called us to worship. So we have Christ's invitation or his call. Then in verses 9 through 15, we have his commendation. And he does this in two ways. First, he speaks of her beauty, still somewhat poetic, but he speaks of her beauty, of her herself, and then he speaks to her in verses 12 through 15 in the imagery of a beautiful garden. So he kind of describes her in two ways. Lights. Now what woman doesn't delight in being told how beautiful she is inside and out by her husband? Well, that's exactly what Christ is going to do in verses 9 through 11. And then what woman doesn't delight if her husband gives her original and imaginary, imaginative poetry? Wow. Now, please, women, don't have too high expectations of us duds, okay? <laughs> but even when I pick out a good birthday card, my wife really appreciates it. When I go to a little bit of effort to really think about what it says and to make sure it matches my emotion, that still delights me. I thought he didn't just rush and grab, grab something. And that's what he's going to do here. And so in verses 9 through 11, he speaks of his beautiful bride. It's something akin to Revelation 20, 21, excuse me, 1 and 2, where we read this. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. At Christ's return, the bride and the groom are completely married. And the bride has been purified. 
So he begins in verse 9a. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart. Now this word ravished in the Hebrew actually means to be unhearted. And heart in the Hebrew, even like the Greek, means more than just our emotions. It means our mind. It means all of our internal being, our inner man. So in one sense God's saying, I've lost my mind. I'm out of control. You could potentially even see a paraphrase of this saying, God's crazy about us. Can you imagine that? God's crazy about his church. He's obviously using anthropomorphic language, right? Language that we can understand as those made in his image as humans. But he's saying something to us about it. Just because it's anthropomorphic doesn't mean it's not real. He's not lying to us. His love for us in Christ is that four-dimensional love I mentioned in the prayer from Ephesians 4, 8, 3, 18 and 19. And so then he tells us that he loves us that much and then he tells us what catches his eye. What catches the Savior's eye is about us. It's hard to fathom that this is true. This is what God says about you, believer. This is what he says about us as the body of Christ. What catches his eye first in 9b is one of thine eyes. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes. I believe it's speaking of faith. The eye of faith. It's one eye. Even the smallest glance of faith impresses our Lord. It delights. Little faith. But real faith. Sincere faith. One eye. Glancing at him. That's what catches his eye. When our eye catches him. Then he speaks of one chain of thy neck. Based on Proverbs 1, 8, and 9, and the reference to a chain or a neck being put on in, re in relation to a father's instruction and a mother's law, this seems to be referring to submission. What catches Christ's eye is our submission to him. Our willingness to immediately and cheerfully obey what he tells us to do knowing that it's for our good. Then he speaks of our love, 10a. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine. <coughs> he loves the way we love him. Wow. He loves the way we love him. As little as our love is. As shallow as it is, he still loves our love. Won't we give him more? Won't we give him more? He loves our graces and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Those graces, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And that's not all. There are many other graces we learn about in Scripture. 
Are we growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? He loves our graces. He also loves our good words. In 11. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue. He says our words drop like honeycomb. Our words of prayer and praise and worship to him. Our speaking truth in love to those within the body of Christ for comfort and for challenge at times. He also loves our lips when they're seasoned with salt and we speak to those without about the beauty of our Savior and about the reality of salvation through faith in Him and Him alone. He loves those things. He also notes the honey and milk under our tongue. I believe this is the good heart from which the good words come from. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 12, 35, out of the heart the mouth speaketh. Where's your treasure? What are you thinking about? When was the last time you thought about what you thought about? That's really self-examination, isn't it? Because often what we think about is what we eventually say and do. Right, so let's go back to the fountain of our saying and our doing. What are we thinking about? Where's our focus? Is it on the hills of Lebanon and Amana and Sinar, the pleasant things that the, world, the Lord's given us of the creation? The things we can enjoy? Did we not enjoy good food yesterday and good drink? Did we not enjoy the weather, and being able to go out into God's creation. All beautiful things, things we ought to thank the Lord for. But there's something more. God himself, the creator. And he's calling us to fellowship with him. And he's telling us what he delights in. And then lastly, in 11c, he gives a seventh thing that his eyes upon upon us as his people. The smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. He's talked about the smell of our ointments, of our ointments, now it's of our garments. So I believe this is referring to our righteousness. It's unclear as to whether it's referring specifically to imputed righteousness or infused the righteousness of good works or holiness. Right? Roman Catholics get those confused. Right? But there is a righteousness that's used, the word righteousness is used, and righteousness is used sometimes clearly referring to our progressive sanctification, our growth in grace. So it's unclear exactly what this is referring to, but clearly it's the outward, from the inward being purified, our outward, our behavior becomes pure. Our words, our hearts, our works, that's what Christ is on. He's eyeing our beauty. Oh, may increase our faith as we see his beauty. Now he speaks then in verses 12 through 15 of our beauty under the imagery of a garden, a beautiful garden. 
believe it's the imagery of the Garden of Eden. Heaven will be a restoration of paradise. It'll be better than paradise. We won't be able to sin there. Adam was able to sin in the original paradise. But this is a picture back of paradise. We see that picked up in the book of Revelation describing what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. It'll be similar to paradise. It'll be a continuity with paradise as is described there in the first couple chapters of Genesis. One thing we have to note is that in Ecclesiastes 2, 5, and 6, we've already been told that Solomon made great gardens. We also know from 1 Kings 4, 33, that he wrote about great gardens and the spices and the fruits and trees that were within those gardens. He was a horticulturist. He really appreciated gardens. And he really understood the beauty of them. He was enthralled with them to some degree. And now he's going to use them to describe how Christ sees him in him as he's united to Christ. How he sees us in him, the second Adam. First, I think we see in in this section that this garden is a planted garden. This is not a natural garden. This is a planted and a cultivated garden. In verse 12 we're told there's a spring and a fountain. A fountain of gardens, a a well of living waters in verse 15. It sounds to me a lot like Psalm 1. Like a tree planted by streams of living water. Planted. Reminds me of Psalm 46.4. The river, the stream whereof, shall make glad the city of God. Ancient cities were built on rivers. Should that surprise us? Should not need a lot of water? Sometimes we, we in the West sometimes don't appreciate just how important water is because it's so plenteous. But Easterners recognized how important it was. And great cities are built on water and the city of God has a stream that ever flows with living water straight from the throne of God. His grace, rivers of water, it's a water garden, it's a protected garden, it's enclosed, it's shut up. God hedges us about, we're told in Scripture. He's like a fire around the people of God. He guards us and keeps us. It's also an owned garden. It's a precious garden. It's sealed, we're told, in 12b. He's made a pledge of ownership. He owns us. You see, we've been bought with a price. He loved us unto death. He loved us so much that he was willing to be separated from the Father. He was willing to undergo the pangs of hell for all of his people that will ever be his people. 
on the cross in those hours between when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when he said, it is finished. In that period, he underwent the pangs of hell. Separation from the Father. For us, we're bought with a price. He owns us. It's also a pleasant garden. To, I, mean, I think it's a reference again to Christ-like graces. We have the fruit of the Spirit, or what Paul says in Philippians 1.11, the fruits of righteousness. Because of our imputed righteousness, there'll be fruits of righteousness in our holy living. They're pleasant fruits. fruits. They're profitable fruits. What a love the Lord has for us, his people. Let us now look briefly at what our response ought to be to this call, this invitation, and this commendation. Christ has wooed us. He spoke, he's been wowed about us. Now are we going to swoon before him? Here the bride does two things, I believe, in verse 16. She implores the Holy Spirit's influence. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden that the spices thereof may flow out. And then she invites the groom in. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. I want to commune with you. You've invited me to worship you. Come and be present with me. Assist me to worship you aright. As she implores the presence of the Holy Spirit. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Asking for his presence and then asking for his influence. Blow upon my garden that the spices thereof may flow out. When was the last time you asked for fresh effusions of the Holy Spirit. We know the Spirit indwells us, but aren't we called to be filled with the Spirit? And what motivates us to holy living and to holy speaking but the Spirit? And He's available to us. You remember, children, in Luke 11, 9 through 13, Jesus encourages us to ask and to knock and to seek. And he that asks and he that knocks and he that seeks will find. And then he gives this comparison. He says, will you parents give your children a stone if they ask for a piece of bread? Will you parents give a serpent if your child asks for some fish for dinner? Children, has your daddy ever given you a stone on your plate for dinner? No, of course not. And if you ask for an egg at breakfast, or lunch, you like a hard-boiled egg, Mommy, does she put a scorpion on your plate? Jesus says, of course not. Of course you don't do that. And yet he goes on to say, you being evil, don't do that. In other words, he's acknowledging we're sinful in all that we do. And yet we love our children enough not to harm them. He says, you being evil would, do, would, would give them good things. How much more 
How much more? How much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? If you ask. It's pretty evident in that passage. He's telling us what the greatest thing we could ask for is. More of his spirit. More of his spirit's influence in our lives. Let us ask for more of the Spirit's influence. Let us also ask that the Lord would increase us faith, our faith when the Spirit is influencing us. We believe, but we all know we don't believe like we ought to. Oh, would He increase our faith. Oh, would He increase the influence of the Spirit in our lives. And then we're called to invite Him in. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat of his pleasant fruits. Let the Lord see our graces in our worship, our submission, our love, our joy, our delight, and be in his presence. Let's ask for his presence. We don't have to just do that at the invocation. That can start this evening in your family worship. That can continue in your personal worship through the week. Right? Ask him to come be present with you in your closet. Ask him to come be present with you in your family. And when you're in your closet, in your family, ask him to be present in a special way on the Lord's day. You see, children, I believe there's a sense where you know, walk the aisle again. Walk down. Everybody's in God's presence. Even the people that are at home or the people that are out on the golf course today, they're still in God's presence in some way, aren't they? And then when we come into our closet, we meet with the Lord Himself. There's this special presence, isn't there? And then how God it's just like when we meet in our family, there's a special presence of God. But when we come on the Lord's day in His presence, there's a special, special presence. And guess what? When we go to glory, there's going to be a special, special, special presence of the Lord at the wedding when we're united to Him. Let us more fully appreciate the special presence, the special, special presence as we look forward to the special, special, special presence of the Lord when He graduates us from this school that we're in at present, whether that's today going home or whether that's many, many years from now, is going to take us home into a special, special, special presence. Let us live in light of that today. Let us grow to love his love for us. He loves the way we love him. Oh, that we might love the way he has loved us more loved us and gave himself for us. He was willing to undergo the very wrath of God.